Thanks for tuning in to Reach Radio, a podcast for public health professionals looking to expand their network, be inspired, and discover resources and tools that help improve the experience of public health professionals and patients in their communities. I'm your host, Fran. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Reach Radio. I am pleased to introduce you to Dr. Elizabeth Walla. Dr. Walla has more than 15 years of experience focused on health systems, universal health coverage, healthcare policy development, pharmaceutical medicine distribution, and clinical research. She is known and respected for driving continuous improvement programs, building partnerships across cultures, and leading national and international private, public, and nonprofit health sector stakeholders to greater expansion. She's participated in the development of key national and international policies and guidelines across many African countries. Dr. Walla, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Fran. I'm happy to be here. Yeah, we're happy to have you. I'm so excited to hear about some of the work that your organization is doing. And, you know, what I have read so far has been so impressive. Why don't we just start off by telling us a little bit about Aga Khan Foundation? Thank you, Fran. So the Aga Khan Foundation is an agency of the Aga Khan Development Network, which is under the His Highness the Aga Khan. The foundation was established in 1967, and what we seek to do is to bring together human, financial, and technical resources to address the challenges faced by the poorest and most marginalized communities in the world. We have a special emphasis placed on investing in human potential, expanding the opportunity, and improving the overall quality of life. And we have like um, six thematic areas. So we have health and nutrition, we work in agriculture and food security. We work in civil society, in education, in early childhood, and in economic inclusion. Wow, that's fantastic. And it covers so many critically important areas. When you yes. think about all of that, what would you say would be like the number one initiative that your organization has going right now? So we, we have offices in Africa and in Central Asia. And the focus depends on the regions because then there are some regions like in Central Asia where Afghanistan and the Syrias where, you know, instability is an issue, political instability. And thus, in that case, we look more at uh, humanitarian efforts. But let me narrow down to Africa where we have a very large focus on health and nutrition and in the education sector and uh, as well as agriculture and food security for the areas that are experiencing a lot of uh, food insecurity, like uh, an example is Mozambique that has a lot of climatic changes, Madagascar. So areas where there's instability and civil unrest, then we skew our efforts towards alleviating the frustration or the poverty that is in those areas. But more or less, I would place agriculture and food security and then health and nutrition as um, top two in Africa. Well, and you know, the truth is it's that it, it directly influences, I mean, your overall health, right? And there's sort of two ends of it. You've got the one end, which is where there's the food, you know, disparities, right? Where, and, and scarcities. And then you've got the other end where there's sort of the food gluttony and people eating too much and eating too much is the mm-hmm. wrong things. Mm-hmm. Um, this is just, you know, sort of challenges all the way around. When you think about the issues of um, nu- nutrition and, and its impact on health, what are some of the programs that your organization is focused in on? Yeah, so you are very right. We do have over nutrition or basically excess of uh, one 
food item. We also have undernutrition for a whole. Now, there, when you talk about nutrition, we talk about whether it's acute, meaning it's a short-term event. For example, if someone has, if an area has experienced a cyclone, then you find, you know, the farms are destroyed or any food stores are destroyed. You are faced with an immediate need for food. But the population is generally not affected in a long-term uh, space. But then we we go to other places where it is maybe uh, farming, or it is uh, just because of certain social determinants of health, which then make them, you know, have low or undernutrition. Then those are now chronic kind of uh, solution or, or other situations where you're looking at a very long-term solutions in terms of changing behavior, in terms of introducing new agricultural practices, in terms of uh, taking, you know, talking about um, mother's nutrition, because what we've discovered is that um, a mother's nutrition generally directly affects the child's nutrition in the long term. So mothers who are, let's say, short in stature in terms of stunting or who have low blood levels means that they generally give birth to children who are already disadvantaged because then they do not have the necessary nutrients to take them to a level where their brain is developing normally. Uh, and so the interventions in such a case would be very, very different from the interventions where it's an acute situation and all you need is to supply food itself. So we have these two different approaches depending on the need and also the cause of the malnutrition, so to speak. So you're really kind of that farm to table, right? Sort of approach. I mean, you're capturing and you're educating from an agricultural perspective and, and then all the way down to the locally to the families and the communities themselves. Do you find that you're welcomed in communities? I mean, is some of the work that you're doing, is it outreaching directly to the families themselves? And and how do farmers respond to the your suggestions on altering their practices and the way that they are harvesting and managing the, the crop? Yes. So, Fran, our approach is uh, very bottom-up, where we work with uh, community-based organizations. We work with institutions like religious uh, bodies, like the churches, the mosques. Uh, we, we work with the education system, we work with the local government, because um, sometimes we have this uh, savior mentality as NGOs, where we come up with solutions in our big offices, and then we go down to the communities and say, this is what you need to do. And that has really not been sustainable and also has been rejected uh, for quite uh, for many instances. So what we do ideally is um, once we have identified there is a need in, a, in an area, then uh, we look for funding and, and identify um, where we can get some grants in terms of uh, supporting interventions in that community. And then we work with the communities themselves. Usually we are already in place through our different thematic areas. For example, in some areas, you'd find we have community-based organizations that look at economic inclusion. Let's say table banking measures where you find several households are coming together to save or to put aside some investments for maybe their health or their other economic investments. 
And we use those similar mechanisms that we have either created or maybe the community already has in existence. I think it's very hard to find that we, we, we go to a community where there's no structure at all. So it's through working with these existing structures that are recognized and respected within the community that we help to identify and co-create with them solutions that are culturally and socially acceptable. Because you'll find in one area, maybe fishing is a way of life and you want to introduce rice farming. And, and that means that they are totally changing from what they've been doing before. So we try and identify what is in it in the fishing that they're not finding a balance and helping them come to that situation. I mean, the solution itself, and then working with them to implement those solutions. So we are very, very focused on a bottom approach towards this. We also look at systemically a systemic approach to addressing these issues. So for example, sometimes you require legislation, to ensure that uh, maybe the foods that are being sold in the marketplaces have a certain, you're looking at maybe hygiene practices, you're looking at fat content, dietary content basically, and that will require legislation at a higher level that would maybe help people to identify when I'm buying this or I'm purchasing a commercial product, what is within that content. We also look at incentivizing the small-scale traders because what we've seen is that uh, for, let's say, an urban setting, you'll find the challenges are very different from a rural setting. So an urban setting, you'd find there'll be a lot of fast food being sold and, and the purchasing power of the household is usually vested on the women. So we try to help to identify and educate the, the, the household members on the Benefits of looking for nutritious food, which most of the time would not be in the fast food. But we also try and address the traders because then this is their livelihood. So how do we put incentives uh, amongst the traders in order to ensure that they're promoting healthy eating amongst the, the population as they do survive on their trade as it is? That makes total sense. And it sounds, you know, incredibly comprehensive. I'm curious to know though, um, you've mentioned a lot of different vehicles for economic and uh, even some social development. What role does technology play in the work that you're doing? And are you seeing an increased adoption of technology? Yes. So technology plays a very big role in implementing our programs, in identifying target populations, in creating solutions. So we have technology that is uh, digital health. Let's say, let me pick uh, the health sector. So for example, digital health programs where you're able to, if if you're looking at uh, mother-child programs, you want to identify the women who are of reproductive age, try and ensure that they go for uh, medical checkups even before conception. So you have technology that's able to remind the women that they are due for a checkup or that um, we also work through community health volunteers. And these are, you know, people from amongst the communities who've been chosen by the community to represent them in matters health. And they generally are assigned, let's say, 10 households per community health volunteer 
So these community health volunteers are able to spread messages of public health importance. They're able to administer simple products like um, oral contraceptives. They're able to give, in some cases, they're allowed to give vaccinations, oral vaccinations. So you can use technology, let's say in that case, for implementing programs, but you also use technology to gather information in terms of data, what we need. We look at disease patterns because all this now inform our, on approaches or solutions that we need to ensure that systems are working. And I think during this COVID-19 season, because we've had a lot of social distancing measures, technology has really come to support health interventions. The health sector is a laggard when it comes to adopting technology. So health providers are now seeing the benefit of embracing a lot of the stuff that's been out there in the market, but not adopted as easily as, let's say, in the financial sector. So technology is a tool that we use to support implementation of programs. It's a tool we use to support decision-making, it's a tool we use to introduce new uh, ways of working or new ways of implementing programs within the community and the society at large. I think that's fantastic. Now, you've talked about some of the, your key stakeholders, I mean, principally beginning with folks in the community and then some of the agencies or local organizations and institutions. Are there any other key stakeholders that um, really are instrumental to some of the change that you're looking to positively have in the communities, either locally, regionally, or globally? Okay, so we are members of certain platforms. If I talk about health and nutrition, which is in my docket. So yes. we are members of certain in civil society groups. So we have like a universal health coverage civil society mechanism. That's an advocacy group that's there to push the agenda of universal health coverage within countries. We would be members of, let's say, technical groups in terms of vaccine, global uh, vaccine alliance. So at, at a global level, we identify as aligned to our strategy. For us, we are looking more at mother and child, and we identify opportunities and spaces where we are able to champion the voice of the communities that we serve in those spaces. I think regionally here in Africa, we also within the different countries we work with, we are members of uh, country level technical working groups. We are members of professional uh, bodies in the private sector for because we do have uh, for-profit hospitals in, in the communities. Um, so we plug into spaces where we are able to bring up the voice of the communities we serve. We are able to champion for them and we are able to help to shape the policy and advocacy spaces. We also try and um, influence legislation that's able to promote the kind of interventions that we, we do in light of serving the communities better. It's incredibly powerful, incredibly powerful. And you earlier had talked a bit about the pandemic. You sort of referenced that and it couldn't. I couldn't help but begin to think about the incredible work that you've most recently published, the COVID-19 Survivor Diaries. Can you tell us a little bit about the book and your inspiration for it? Yes. So thank you very much for that. We're 
I wrote the book because I needed to break the stigma around COVID-19. So as an, in, an individual, I got infected with COVID-19 in July of this year. And uh, that was a time in our country, Kenya, where there's a lot of stigma around it. We had, as long as you are positive, some people are being you know, taken to hospital, even if they didn't have symptoms. And there was all this drama of uh, and suspicion around COVID-19. And I think it was largely driven by fear because all we had from the government, unfortunately, was, you know, death, death, death. And um, for us in the public health space, we talk about statistics, not in absolute numbers, but in um, percentages or ratios. So what that kept on coming out was absolute numbers of how many people have died, how many people have died. And so death was the driving force of people changing behavior or trying to change behavior. And I think when I got it, it was just around the time when our first medical doctors had succumbed to it. And she was a personal friend. And I saw what her family went through in terms of um, the burial, in terms of, you know, everything was rushed because there was all this fear that, you know, dead bodies were infectious in nature. So there wasn't closure for her children because they were not able to view her, they were not able to have closure. Um, so when I got the infected, we had a change in policy where now home-based care and, and management was introduced so that if you had mild or no symptoms, you just needed to stay at home and, and, and you know, keep on checking on yourself. And, and hopefully a health worker was supposed to check on you also on phone. So it was during that time that I thought I would document my journey on uh, the things I was going through as a middle-class Kenyan, which is very, very different from what um, someone who is in the lower socioeconomic status would go through. But also coming out publicly and saying, look, I tested positive and I have symptoms that they are not severe and it's not a death sentence. So through that, I was able to, you know, share my journey, both the highs and the lows, because uh, there were high moments and there were very low moments uh, because of the stigma, the anxiety that comes with being on home-based care, you are in a room, not able to leave unless it is not in suit. And then you're not able to interact with your family. You're not able to interact, of course, with anyone else. So that kind of isolation can drive someone crazy. And um, I remember there was so much positive response from the people who are reached by these stories. And uh, guys kept on coming out and they'd say, you know what, I think I'm also experiencing similar symptoms. Uh, what do I need to do? So that kind of propelled people to come out and say it's a disease. Yes, but then it is not a death sentence as it were. Unless you have, you know, underlying morbidities, then you'd, you'd be worried that you'd need to seek um, professional help. So you also received some negative feedback, right? Mm -hmm. Tell us mm -hmm. a little bit about the kind of, unfortunately, I guess I'm not surprised, but I mean, it's just a reality. What was some of the negative feedback that you were receiving from folks who found out you contracted the virus? Um, from the, the negative feedback included the fact that people were trying to find out why did I get COVID-19? 
Was it because I broke the rules, quote unquote, of uh, the public health measures that had been we'd been told to practice? And that was the biggest issue that people would try to understand why you got it and not understanding the fact that in terms of the epidemiology of the disease, there was already community spread, as we call it, community transmission. We also didn't tell people that masks are not 100% proof, so you can still get infected with the surgical masks. So the ones that were uh, effective were the N95 masks, and those are not used in public. Uh, also, I remember being asked, why am I going public about something that should be private? Uh, why am I exposing my family to public, you know, ridicule or, or stigma? Because mm-hmm. my children are stigmatized in where we stay, the estate. Mm-hmm. I mean, their friends are told not to visit our house for quite a while. In fact, I think even four months after I recovered, they still had that tag with them that your mother had COVID. That's the house with COVID. So that was very common. And uh, I remember one incident that was interesting where someone sent me some condolence message or rather get get well message. And then in the same breath asked me whether I have life insurance in case I die. Yeah. So basically it was a salesperson for insurance and generally saying, you know, this disease, uh, the outcome is most likely death. So are you prepared for death? So I think um, people are scared. I don't blame them because, to be honest, every single day at 4 p.m., the government comes out and says, these are the number of people we tested. These are the number of people who've died. You need to do this. You need to do that. You are not doing this. You're not doing that. So it was hammering into people's conscience such that we stigmatized anyone who had the disease. That's a, it's amazing. I, you know, I, I, I read it. And I thought it was phenomenal. I love the emotion with with which the book was written, but also the resources. You know, the you integrated some incredible best practices and some realities of what's going on in the minds of not only those who've contracted, but also those who are trying to to stay safe. Um, yeah. Do you want to comment a little bit about that? Yes. So. We co-authored the book with uh, my professor, Joachim Osur, who's a, a former colleague at the organization where I was before. And I remember him reaching out and being very pragmatic. And he told me, Liz, I need you to tell me, push to me anything and everything that you're experiencing, whether it's high or low, if you want to cry, if you want to cast, um, because we need to to get something out of this experience in terms of are we able to move away from theory and put in lived experiences. So I was happy to do that because anyway, my documentation was already public, but then it was on on Facebook. So not everyone is on Facebook. Mm. So I thought a book would help. And anyway, even searching for the entries would take so long because it's every day I'm documenting like a status update. So compiling that into a book was largely his work and also using the materials that are already there in terms of reference materials. And also sometimes talking about what the policy says and what is really practical. For example, in the policy, you're told, you know, don't interact, you know, get yourself, stay in one room. I mean, there's a number of Kenyans who share rooms. One, they live in one-roomed houses. 
So the practicality of some of those policies was also brought to light because it's easy to say it when you're in a boardroom and then in the practice, it's something totally different. And no one was talking about, of course, there will be civil society will be up in arms about some of the measures that are very radical. But then getting someone to come out and say, this is what I'm going through. And this is how hard it is. You're telling me to get, you know, vitamin C and whatnot and zinc. I don't even have food on my table. So those right. are the realities of very many of, of, of the Kenyans living in the lower socioeconomic informal settlements. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I believe in, in fact, in one part in the book you talk about, I know many who are now simply opting to self-medicate without going for the test to evade this scary hype. The hy- and, mm-hmm. and then the section you're referring exactly. to the hype around what was going on and how it Unfortunate was that they have to resort to unsupported self-care and, Mm. you know, in case things get out of hand. And, you know, it it makes me sort of think about this next wave we're moving into, right? We're moving into the next phase. Our next phase is one in which the vaccines are beginning to be introduced in some regions of the world. What are your thoughts about that? How, How do you see things changing or shifting as a result of the introduction of the, the vaccine? I would say, honestly, Fran, it's a good thing and a bad thing in a way. The good thing is that a solution, we're getting closer to a solution. So it's not your effectiveness is yet to be seen because many of these were very short trials, but then we have promising results. It's a bad thing in terms of uh, it's going to drive iniquity further because we already have, we can't have everyone getting it. That's number one. So then we have to prioritize the vulnerable groups, the healthcare workers, um, the elderly and such. Um, The other thing is that most of them require some pretty difficult cold chain situations. I think there's one I saw that was like at negative 90 or so degrees, which we are struggling with already. In, in, In Africa, we're struggling with cold chain. We're struggling with, you know, electricity. We... For the ones that are there, and I think the, the one that needs a call, the uh, supply chain or storage is negative four degrees. And now mm-hmm. here we're talking about almost negative 100. So that's the practicality of that is impossible for us. The other thing is um, getting people to, to, to adhere to two doses. So mm-hmm. we have an issue of our technology in terms of our databases. We don't have electronic health records. It's going to require us to up our health systems as it is. So it's not just the vaccine is here. There's so many things around it that need to be supported. Those are really valid points, right? I mean, if you think about compliance and persistency, we already have the issues of compliance and persistency, you know, just with even simple thing, routine things like antibiotics, right? Uh And even in those environments where you may have these electronic medical records, et cetera, the technology is not used to the extent that it could be utilized. And then there's just that human element of it all in the end that, you know, gives people that sense of purpose and meaning for why they need to follow through. And if they're getting, you know, symptoms with the first dosage, you know, the discouragement that might have forgetting the second. So I applaud you for, you know, um, acknowledging those and, and certainly mm-hmm. on the management of the, of the medications itself, the conditions under which they need to be, uh, the vaccines rather need to be uh, handled is really important. 
And Fran, let me just jump in and talk about uh, vaccine hesitancy. So initially, it was a lot of uh, hype from the West. But now we have quite a large following of uh, anti-vaxxers in this part of the world, not just with this COVID-19, but with also other childhood vaccinations. So it's important to also remember that um, there is a lot of counter theories <laughs> on the origin of this and the reason why vaccines are being made and whatnot. And that is a real issue. People no longer just take, you know, the government has said we need to take this and so we're going to take it. So it's important that uh, we recognize the possibility of anti-vaxxers and that um, there's a lot of uh, theories, uh, conspiracy or otherwise that are going around about this, this, this disease. It doesn't help that uh, countries like America, where the outgoing president was also very anti some of those public health measures. So we in public health, I think we are going through a time that we've unprecedented time. We are faced with the broken health systems and then also faced with now new complex issues like like that because we ne we didn't have to deal with it uh, with the other vaccines so that mm -hmm. we need to remember that that's also a potentially big challenge yeah i think that that's a very valid point i mean certainly even in the introduction of previous vaccines there you know there were elements of challenge but that they, they became overcome but it took mm -hmm. some very community oriented and grassroots approaches to educating people in the communities and people locally participating, right? Th those that you recognize and trust being um, part of the part of the whole system, right? being part of the program of mm -hmm. um, getting the community and getting those in, in your own neighborhood to be willing to sign up. I mean, that's, that's just a reality of it. And it's very likely that, you know, those principles don't change. You know, we're still all human, right? And we need to recognize that it will take a village, right? It will take the, the community. And as well as you point out in your book that it's going to you know, take a little bit of compassion, right? I think you mm -hmm. talk about mm -hmm. compassion um, in your book as well. Well, this has been so much fun. I have really enjoyed having you here as our guest. I can't thank you enough for your time today. I'm I guess before we say goodbye, I'd love to know, perhaps if you could be willing to share with us one best resource that you use that you feel that perhaps many people don't know about and that you'd like to share. So one best resource is, um, I think I, I love to experience stories from the ground. Mm. I love to, to get into the minds or the context with which um, people make certain decisions, especially with regards to their health. So sometimes as a, um, I'm a medical doctor and we were trained to handle diseases, not people or communities, at least in our times. I think they've changed now. You can think that you have, you know, like people need to do this so that they feel better, but then you've not understood why they're doing certain things as they do them. So I think I love anthropology, so to speak, and that um, getting there, I love resources that are digging into why the behavior, why people behave the way they do. Mm -hmm. So trying to understand, trying to see things from their point of view, because we are not always right. 
And I think this has challenged a lot of the public health measures that we've put in place, has challenged a lot of the interventions from the West. So there's a lot of new theories, new thoughts, decolonization of public health in Africa, where we are beginning to appreciate that the things that we practice as an African society are not necessarily harmful, but they serve the purpose. So how do we integrate that with, say, modern science? So my resources would not be book kind, but right from the community's voice. I love that. I think that that's, um, that's beautiful. And you're right that there's such a wealth of knowledge that's right there, perhaps in our, you know, multi-generation families, right, right there in our own homes or with those in our community. And what better a way to go about learning about the best approaches to helping people live better lives and understand the mm. way that they live and why they, the, why they believe that the way they live is the best way to live their life. Right. Exactly. And integrating yeah. and preserving as much of that as possible. How beautiful. Well, Dr. Walla, thank you so much. We, again, I've just been elated to have you today. And if anyone wanted to get a hold of you, what's the best way for them to reach you? So professionally, my email address is elizabeth.wala, W-A-L-A, at A-K-D-N.org. Or you can get me on Twitter. That's at Liz Wala, L-I-Z-W-A-L-A. And on LinkedIn, I'm Elizabeth Wala, Dr. Elizabeth Wala. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Wala. And thank you so much for those tuning in today. We welcome you to visit more about Dr. Walla and to hear the transcript on our website. And thanks, everybody. Have a great day. You too. Bye-bye. Thanks for tuning into Reach Radio. This program is made possible by listeners like you. To learn more about Reach and to support this program, visit www.reachtl.org.